Luke chapter 22, verse 54. Then they seized him, this is Jesus, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he, Peter, denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I'm not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the roost crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And then he, Peter, went out and wept bitterly. A question as we begin our consideration of these words of Scripture. At what cost of suffering are you, am I, willing to endure as we stand firm in our relationship with the Lord Jesus? At what cost of suffering? And at what cost will we deny him? As we would consider that question, we're not at this moment here in this church under any real form of crisis. We're comfortable and we're not under threat. And it's during these times of a secure comfort that we usually think the very best of ourselves, perhaps even declaring that we would be more loyal to the Lord Jesus than than was Peter. And perhaps we would. Perhaps we would have remained more loyal to him. I'd hope that I would have been. But the truth is, I don't know how I would have responded. I really don't. I would hope that I would have responded well. But I really don't know how I would have responded. I might have been even like those other disciples that didn't even follow after him, but they just ran and hid themselves. What is that controlling even overpowering emotion that invades our souls and takes control over our hearts and minds at a time like that. It's fear, just simple fear. Now may I interject here that while, yes, fear is a normal, God-given, God-given emotional response, and it's intended for our good for those times of crises, but it's also a very useful weapon within the demonic realm, fear. According to these scriptures, fear is an actual spirit, a demonic spirit that employs that emotion of fear. And especially at the wrong times and to the wrong extents. Often just overwhelming and paralyzing a person, as probably took place with Peter and these other disciples. In a sermon that I heard just recently, the preacher spoke about our emotional responses to confrontations such as this. And he acknowledged that the psychological community is correct when they describe those responses as a fight-or-flight response. And we do have that, fight-or-flight, sometimes both. Earlier in this particular evening, as those temple guards and chief priests approached the disciples there in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter, his first response was to pull his sword, and he struck the chief priest's servant Malchus and cut off his ear. Jesus very graciously told him to put the sword away and he healed the man's ear. 
Now, those heroic kinds of responses do seem often to come to a person of Peter's disposition. These Gospels tell us that Peter was an impulsive man. He was given to a strong, immediate response. He demonstrated that impulsiveness earlier on in that evening when there in the upper room, he had just valiantly declared to Jesus that he would go anywhere with him. He would do anything, suffer any cause. But Jesus knew better. And he very kindly warned Peter that he would do exactly as he did. That he would do exactly as he did. That before the rooster crowed, Peter would deny him three times. We read those words. This is in verse 31, if you would like to go back there. Chapter 22, verse 31, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again and strengthened your brothers, then Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Jesus was able to know all that dwelt within the minds and hearts of men. All through these Gospels, we're told that Jesus knew what the people around him was thinking. With those words and with these words, it confirms to us that Jesus was who he said he was. That yes, he was a man. And in many ways, not much different than Peter. But then again, he was also ever and always the only begotten Son of God. And as the Son of God, he knew things that no other man could know. He perceived thoughts that no one else could perceive. His, Jesus's was a a very delicate combination that no other man would ever experience. He was, as the Westminster Confession of Faith tells us, he was both very God and very man. And while sometimes his words surprise us as he makes statements about not knowing something, such as those times when he would say, I really don't know the day or the time of my return to you in my second coming. Even though he said that, and that was true, and he had those limitations, he was still ever and always very God. And though you and I might not be able to fathom that combination, it was true. And many learned Bible scholars have diligently searched these scriptures to find just where that limitation and that extent of of who Jesus was as Son of Man and Son of God, that line that separated his humanity and his deity, they've never been able to determine it. And it will forever remain a mystery to us. But he was. He was both fully God and fully man. And his prophetic warning here to Peter about how Peter would deny him, that prophetic warning no doubt came out from his position within the deity. For he was son of God. Those words again, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Think about those words that I just read. Those words bring to my mind a mystery that takes place within those council courts of the Trinity. And it reminded me of another circumstance where another request was made to be able to sift a person. And that was with the old prophet Job. We will turn to Job chapter 1. I want to read a portion of that to you. Job chapter 1. Job is just before the book of Psalms. 
Job chapter 1. I'm going to begin in verse 6. Listen to these words. Very similar to what Jesus just said to Peter. Verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on all the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the works of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But if you'll put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, he will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand upon him. So Satan then departed from the presence of the Lord. Now later on, Satan would come back again, and he would ask for more permission to sift Job. What I'd like for us to understand that this is part of the mystery that takes place all of the time in the courts of the Trinity. Here, God has, in these words concerning the servant Job, God has permitted this brief glimpse into the manner in which he governs. Here we discover within the mysterious realms of God that there are some very special ones here understood to be governing angels. And they are in this context called sons of God as they present themselves before God. And Satan, although he is deposed from his righteous position, he's still given access to come there, perhaps even required to appear there and to give an account before God. We don't know. But here are the sons of God presenting themselves before God in his courts. And then here the man Job becomes the center of attention between God and Satan. Now, I confess that I do not understand all of the proceedings that took place here. But it's clear that this man, Job, is representative of all of us, all of us who would regularly call upon the name of the Lord. And he was especially representative of Peter here in our text today. Yes, by his grace, God keeps a protective hedge around each of his beloved children, around Job, around Peter, around each one of you, me preventing Satan and his demons from plying the very worst of their demonic miseries. But then, sometimes, on occasion, always for our good, God will remove some of that edge, and he'll permit Satan to have access to us. Now here we find that Peter is the one rather than Job, whose name has been brought before the courts of God. And there Satan has asked permission to have access to Peter to sift him as wheat. Now consider this, though it's strange to our thinking, even while Jesus still lived in this human form and he walked the earth as a man, he also still sat on his throne at the right hand of God the Father, reigning within the court councils of the Trinity, all taking place at the same time. Just as he had always done, he was still there in the Trinity, yet he was walking the earth. And no, we don't understand that well, but it's true. And there, in that position, in the Trinity courts, Jesus was one of the three, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, that received these petitions 
these requests from the sons of God as they regularly came before the courts. And that's why Jesus would then say to Peter that Satan has asked permission, has demanded, that's the personality of Satan, has asked permission to sift you as wheat. Think about it. But now also consider that, yes, while Jesus did walk this earth at that time, and he did sit there in the court councils, he also had another position there in the Trinity of God. Thankfully, Jesus was ever and always the intercessor. He was and is at the right hand of God the Father, making intercession at every moment for the saints. Hebrews 7.25, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he ever liveth, always lives to make intercession for them, for us who believe. Jesus was ever and always making intercession. And here he would intercede for Peter and pray for him that his faith would not fail as he was tempted. Now did Peter fail? He probably really thought so. He probably really thought so because these three times of denying Christ were not the only times that he had sinned. You recall that earlier there in the upper room that Satan had got a hold of Peter's words and had Peter trying to talk the Lord Jesus out of being sacrificed, being crucified. Did Peter's faith fail? It really does look like his faith did not stand very firm. But the reality is his faith did not fail. His faith did not fail. It faltered, yes, but it did not fail. Why didn't Peter's faith fail him completely? Especially considering that Satan, the master of all tempters, was working within Peter's soul. Why didn't Peter fail completely? It's because of this. Peter's faith did not fail because the master intercessor, the Lord Jesus, was also at work praying and interceding for him And the Lord Jesus is far, far, far more powerful than Satan. And when Jesus intercedes for us, we cannot fail. We cannot. But then what is our part in response to all of this? What was Peter's part once he was brought to the realization of the depth to which he would stoop in response to the fear that was within him? Saying, I don't even know this man. It says in another one of the Gospels that he brought down curses upon himself. He was vile in his denial of Christ. What is any person to do when the truth of our failure just slaps us in the face? And it did that with Peter. As Peter denied Jesus that third time, you notice as that cock was crowing, he looked up and somehow he saw the face of Jesus. Jesus turned to him and he saw the face of Jesus. Listen to this. Verse 59, and after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also is with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And listen, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. Then Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now whatever the cause or the circumstance, whether it be fear, as here with Peter, or some other motive, our lies, your and my lies, and the intents of our heart will inevitably be revealed to us. God will make sure of that. Now here, it was the face of Jesus that brought the conviction to the heart of Peter. 
Why is one look from the Lord Jesus so powerful? Just one glance. It's because Jesus is the light. Jesus is the true light from which no darkness can hide. That look on Jesus' face brought Peter's fears and his lies into full view within Peter's heart and soul, and it broke his heart. And it caused Peter to weep bitterly. And thankfully so. Thankfully so. Why? Because it gives us this real understanding of Peter's heart and of his true relationship with the Lord Jesus. Now this other man, Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, he also, I would suggest, probably wept. But then he went out and he hanged himself for his betrayal. But folks, here is the essential difference between the word remorse and the word repentance. Remorse and repentance. Judas felt remorse. Remorse is a worldly sorrow that only leads to death. But not so, Peter. As we see in the coming days and years even, Peter's grief led him to repentance and to life. And so we have these words in in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Listen to these words, and I want you to take them with you today. 2 Corinthians 7.10 Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. That's the difference between repentance and remorse. Let me read it again. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Judas had regrets, and he went out and hanged himself. But not so Peter. Peter had godly sorrow, which brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Peter had no regrets as his life would continue over the years ahead. But then worldly sorrow brings death. How often have you, have I, wept bitterly for something that we did or didn't do, should have done? We wept, but we found no relief in our sorrows. Most likely, our bitter weeping was for the wrong reason. We were weeping because we were suddenly brought face to face with a loss. A loss that was too much for us to bear. A loss that we should not have suffered. That kind of remorse sometimes has its good result, by the way, but it falls far, far short of God's intention. Remorse, most often, is the result of our having judged ourselves by our own standards and found ourselves guilty. And sometimes our guilt prompts us to inflict severe justice against ourselves, as took place with Judas, where he hanged himself. But most often, when we judge ourselves by our own standards... We're far more generous to ourselves. Yes, we grieve for a while, may even weep bitterly, but then that remorse, that guilt is short-lived and without much consequence. We excuse ourselves in some way. But listen, that is not at all God's intention in the matters of sin. We, listen, you and I, we do not have the privilege of judging ourselves. Sin is ever and always against God and God alone. Psalm 51 tells us that. And he alone is the judge. And he alone has the privilege of pronouncing guilt or innocence. And it is he and he alone who is able to mete out justice and mercy. And it is to him and him alone that you and I must give an account of our sin. Now here Peter's sin was simple fear. 
combined with a lack of faith. But listen, folks, sin is sin. And it grieves the Lord Jesus when we do it, especially, especially when it results in our denying our relationship with Him. It started out as a simple sin of fear and a lack of faith, but it ended up in Peter denying he even knew the Lord Jesus. It was a very good thing when Jesus' all-knowing glance brought sorrow to Peter and brought him to repentance. Peter's failure is being laid bare before you and me here today so that we might be able to see ourselves. Do we understand that? His word here is being brought to us openly so that we can see ourselves. How we do also often deny our relationship with Christ. We may not openly do that, but we deny our relationship with Him. We make choices, sometimes for the most foolish of reasons, perhaps for the convenience of the moment or, or just because we're involved with someone else at the moment in the conversation. But even so, even if it's small and seemingly meaningless almost, by our behavior, by our behavior, we are still denying Christ. And we must understand that that is very, very wrong. And if we're not careful, our denials become a habit, become an ordinary response of life, so much so that someday, someday on that day of judgment, as we stand there before Christ, He may look into our eyes and say, Depart from me. I never knew you. As we close, may I encourage you, may I implore you, may I plead with you to not let that take place within your life. While you still have time, won't you please open up your heart and let godly sorrow seep into it and lead you to repentance that will give you life eternal. Let me close with these words. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Let's pray.